Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Today we are observing the Feast of the Epiphany. Typically, we celebrate this day on when it falls, which would be January 6th, but given that I was out of town, I thought it too important to omit in our corporate observance. So what do we celebrate on the Feast of the Epiphany? Well, the answer is in our gospel lesson this morning, which is the visitation of our Lord by the three wise men from the East. Now, originally, Epiphany was a part of the Christmas celebration, but over time, it has developed into its own miniature liturgical season. It bridges the gap from now until when we begin the pre-Lent time. The story at the heart of Epiphany is one that we're all familiar with, especially if you were raised in Sunday school. Wise men, magi, scholars, mystics, whatever they were, followed a star where they found the child born king of the Jews. In a world without the scriptures, particularly in pagan cultures, humanity often looked to the stars for guidance. Here, God speaks to the wise men in their own language. This is, of course, not an excuse to practice astrology, but it does show us that God will use various means to get our attention. Now, in the story, there is an implicit contrast between these pagans who listen to God speaking to them through nature and follow his voice versus Herod, a king of Israel, who, like the wise men, sought the Christ child, but instead of worshiping him, Herod wanted to execute our Lord. Herod was king in Israel and had an army of scribes and religious teachers at his disposal. He should have known better, but he never seems to get it. Meanwhile, the Magi get it, despite the fact that they didn't belong to Israel. So the star, which serves as a light that attracted and guided the Magi, also blinded Herod, who shrunk away from it, preferring the darkness of power and violence. Like most Bible stories, The story of the Epiphany contains a deeper meaning and that it points to the unfolding of what we call salvation history. The star stands for the light of the gospel, while Herod's reaction exemplifies the Jewish rejection of Christ and the wise men stand for the Gentiles. So Epiphany is about far more than just the story of the wise men. It's a day that we're reminded that the gospel is good news for the world That out of this wreckage and chaos of our sin, God has constituted a multi-ethnic community of redeemed people, what we call the church, for the good of the world. The fundamental issue facing the first generation of Christians in the church was how to live in a community with those who are different. The apostles and many of the first Christians were Jewish, which makes sense because our Lord came into the world as a Jewish man and ministered primarily in Israel. In the Old Testament, the law affirms the, the uniqueness of Israel among the nations. In Deuteronomy 14.2, God says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Israel's elected status, then, 
often led to a purity mindset. The other nations, the pagans, were looked down upon. Now, the problem with this is that Israel was chosen out of the nations, yes, but they were chosen to be a blessing to the entire world. That's wrapped up in the very promise God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. The church, which is the continuation of what God did in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel, has a mission that echoes that promise that was given to Abraham. At our Lord's ascension in the closing chapters of the gospel according to St. Matthew, he commissioned the apostles, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So the church is tasked with taking the gospel out to the ends of the earth, not making ethnic distinctions in our proclamation, but inviting all to come and see that the Lord is good. Fast forward 10 years after the ascension of our Lord, and St. Paul, who was formerly Saul, the persecutor of Christians, has become an apostle and bishop in the church and is dealing with parishes where people of different ethnicities who have different ideas about what being a Christian should look like are trying to live together, are trying to share in the common life of a parish. So reading today's epistle from Ephesians 3, we see how St. Paul emphasizes the universality and inclusionary element of the Christian story in light of this issue which threatened to divide the church. Of course, for this message to be credible, it must come from a credible source. So Paul describes himself as a prisoner, a recipient of grace, and a receiver of divine revelation. He's a prisoner in the literal sense because the book of Ephesians was written from prison, but he identifies himself here not as a prisoner of the Roman Empire, but a prisoner of the Lord, pointing out the spiritual reality in which he is bound to Christ. And obedience to God, then, supersedes everything else in importance. He is a recipient of grace, which, it include, which includes, but is not limited to, the salvific grace that was imparted to him at his conversion. Here, he probably means the grace of his apostleship, which allows him to minister to the Gentiles. Grace, defined by Anglican bishop and Pauline scholar N.T. Wright, is divine power at work through the ministry of St. Paul. That ministry is seen in the fact that Paul is the steward of the mystery that God revealed to him. Now, mystery to Paul is not New Age astrology. It's not the crystal ball of Nostradamus. And it's not the charismatic expressions of Christianity that emphasize things like speaking in tongues or ecstatic visions. So what is the mystery at the heart of St. Paul's ministry? Verse 5 tells us that the mystery he expounds has been hidden from other ages. There have always been intimations of God's universal plan of salvation for the whole world. But how this would be accomplished is not clear in the context of Old Testament national and ethnic Israel. But the answer is revealed to us by the church which is the storehouse 
of the holy apostles and prophets who spoke by the Spirit, as we affirm in the Nicene Creed. And what did they speak? St. Paul tells us that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. They are heirs to the promise made to Abraham. St. Paul is very clear that the promise to be blessed by God and to be a blessing to the world is not contingent on one's ethnic status. In Romans chapter 9, he says, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So how does one receive those promises made to Abraham. How is one a descendant of Isaac? Well, Galatians 3, 28 through 29 possesses the answer. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So even Gentiles, outside of Abraham's physical and biological lineage, can become heirs to the promise that was made to him back in Genesis chapter 12. This is because when we are baptized, no matter who we are, where we're from, we are joined to the same body, the body of Christ, which is a singular entity united by a head, our Lord and Savior, who gives all the parts thereof equal dignity and value. In Romans chapter 11, Paul uses a different imagery to describe the church. He uses a tree to be a symbol for God's people. Rejection of Christ meant that many of the Jewish branches were removed, but acceptance of the gospel entailed a grafting in to the tree of the Gentiles. But it no longer matters what ethnicity, class, or sex you are, because membership in this community is open to all. So it is this message, that the gospel is for all people, that Paul was empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim to the Gentiles, as he says in Ephesians 3.9, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. The result of the gospel, which is at the heart of Paul's ministry, has two results. One we might call external and the other internal. The external is found in verse 10 of today's reading. To the intent that now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. The principalities and powers mentioned here are not earthly governments or powers, but rather spiritual forces that have set themselves up as opposed to God, Satan and his demons, death and sin. These dark forces are confronted with a harsh reality, namely that the church, composed from people of every tongue, tribe, and time, are united together in Christ, who has conquered by the power of his cross. Colossians 2.15 triumphantly proclaims, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And Hebrews 2.14 echoes that, 
For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. But there's an internal benefit too. Not only has Christ won the victory against these forces, but Paul tells us that in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence by faith of him. Christ did what we could not do, in that he lived a perfect life and then gave himself up as a sacrifice for us. Because of the divine and human natures which are united in the person of the word, he has become like us so that we can become like him. And in his faithfulness, the gap between us and God, the gap between sinner and holy Lord, the gap between creature and creator, has been bridged. So now, the church, all of us who make up the church, can go to God in boldness and confidence because we know, as theologian Herbert McCabe says, that when God looks at us, he doesn't see sinners or creatures, but sons. The Feast of the Epiphany then gives us two major takeaways. First, we should take this opportunity to give thanks for the light which showed the way for the Magi, because that same light is at work in us through the movement of the Holy Ghost in our hearts by the preaching of the word, the reception of the sacraments, and the pursuit of virtue. The light leads us as the church through these means, and we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Secondly, we should become bearers of that light. As the church, we are the hands and feet of the body of Christ. We are called to live faithful lives that express the truth of the gospel in deed and word. Deed in that our actions should convey God's love to those who are hurting, like we will on Thursday at Riva Trace. And in word in that we proclaim the gospel, inviting those around us to step into the light because we know that in Christ's faithfulness, we are made faithful in his righteousness. We are made righteous and in his light, we become enlightened in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy ghost. Amen. <laughs>